Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Jed Stiglitz, who's a law professor at Cornell, who focuses on administrative law and agencies. His new book is The Reasoning State, which was published by uh, Cambridge University Press over the summer. Hi, Jed. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Mike. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So as, as you are well aware, administrative agencies play a, whole, a huge role in, um, in society, in American society, including in the area of environmental protection, which is obviously a, uh, a focus of this podcast. But they also seem to be kind of peren- perennially under attack from various sides. Um, so maybe just as, a, as an entryway into the conversation today, I was just curious your thoughts about, you know, what do you think accounts for the love-hate relationship that American society seems to have with agencies like EPA? We love them in the sense that we give them lots of power and we expect lots out of them, but also at the same time, politicians just seem to be able to get away with a lot of um, what's sometimes called bureaucracy bashing, and, and it seems to play to the voters. Uh, yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> the, um, I mean, agencies do like do incredibly important things in our uh, system of government, uh, the EPA and uh, many others, and uh, and there is this kind of uh, 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 dual faced aspect to to agencies, where on the one hand, they're solving problems that um, that uh, really they are only equipped to solve, um, and they're also as you as you say. Uh, constantly criticized. So, so I think the first part of that, uh, story is pretty easy to understand, uh, in a sense that, um, that, that as agencies are doing things that other institutions could not do. Um, so understanding mm-hmm. the, the benefits of agencies, I think is, uh, relatively straightforward, although the mechanism, you know, the, the question of like why they're uniquely situated is I think, a interesting question that, my book engages with and has a slightly different perspective than I think a lot of the literature. The question of why they're criticized is is also an interesting question. Um, and I think there are a variety of possible perspectives here. Um, one is that, you know, that EPA is doing things that are consistent with its mission and statutory objectives in large part. And there's a diversity of views on those substantive questions in society. And some people have sincere disagreement um, uh, uh, with those uh, with those uh, statutory objectives and and the like, because you know they're creating winners and losers by many of their choices, and so the losers are going to be dissatisfied. Um, and so it could be just a disagreement on those kind of economic grounds. It could be disagreement on sort of a more ideological, in, in a more ideological kind of way. Um, and I think that's a lot of what you're seeing that agencies are just doing more and more things. So naturally, they're gonna they're gonna be attracting criticism for doing more and more things. Uh, the more things that they're doing, the more the more trade offs that are integrated into their actions, uh, the more criticism they're gonna they're going to attract. So and you know the other part of it though is that <clears throat> so I think a big part of the criticism should be understood as a sincere disagreement about what they're doing uh, and the and sort of a, um, a disagreement about the choices they make that are implicating trade-offs, uh, creating winners and losers. And there's also a great deal of sort of what you might call insincere disagreement as well, I think, um, where uh, politicians are uh, making something, uh, you know, uh, that there's a certain segment of society that disagrees with what, say, the EPA is doing. And, uh, uh, but the politicians have an interest in generating controversy often. And, uh, and so, so part of what you're seeing is just sort of uh, showmanship by politicians. And so, uh, you know, if we were asked the question of, you know, should we actually get rid of the EPA? Um, could we make a commitment to that effect? Uh, I think that actually the people who would agree to that are, are relatively small. Uh, so those on the right are, you know, EPA is one of the main agencies that people talk about getting rid of the EPA. Uh, I think Perry cited EPA, energy, and education. I think those are the three 
and some other ones that he couldn't remember, I think was, <laughs> if I remember. and then he ended up running the energy department, of course. Right, so. exactly. So that's, that's the irony of that situation. And that's, that's so, so exactly, politicians are always talking about getting rid of these agencies, but, but a lot of it is, is just showmanship, I think. And, and they're playing to the crowd and the like. And if we were actually asked in a, in a way that would commit themselves to getting rid of those agencies, I think that the support for getting rid of them would be much, much smaller, in fact, than it appears to be. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, as you, as you mentioned in this book, you kind of have a different, slightly different take, or not slightly different, I think, you know, pretty substantially different take um, that integrates some of the earlier perspectives on the advantages of agencies, but you have, you, you know, you have your own perspective on it. Um, you know, just to situate folks, you know, I think the you know, one common response to folks, as you were saying, is like, why are agencies uniquely situated to deal with certain types of problems like environmental protection or, um, you know, drug oversight, you know, developing, you know, like the, the way the FDA does is a question of expertise, right? Like we're not going to, we don't want Congress making decisions about whether to authorize new vaccines or we don't want Congress mm -hmm. writing detailed technology-based pollution control requirements um, because Congress is this generalist institution and, you know, the folks there don't, don't have the requisite expertise. But, but, but your take is a little different than that. That, that doesn't, you don't find that altogether satisfying. You know, in, 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 in the book, you're arguing that that's not the full story, at least. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. So the, the conventional story is, as you, as you point out, that look, the reason the agencies are uniquely situated in our society to, to solve problems is because they're more expert than um, than other possible institutions, namely, uh, namely Congress. Um, and uh, and I think that expertise is part of the story in at least two ways. So, and I, I guess I should probably come back to that at the end. Um, but but I see a you know I see a slightly I see a, it's not just a slightly it's a, it is a quite different perspective on what is actually unique about agencies. Um, and the argument is that what agencies are actually uniquely able to do is to develop trust. And the way that they're able to develop trust is through committing themselves to forms of procedural regularity, which include, importantly, reason giving norms and requirements of reason giving that are baked into the way in which regulatory policies are produced as well as uh, ex post forms of review by third parties. That is, so after a regulation has been uh, promulgated by an agency, there's an opportunity for those who are upset by it to seek a, to go to a third party and say, hey, take a look at this policy. Um, it's actually not justified, either in terms of the statutory objectives that, are, that the agency is claiming to be pursuing, or in terms of some factual basis that is at the foundation the policy or the like, um, and so and so through these norms and requirements of reason giving and ex post third party review, um, which comes typically in the form of review by by a court, the agencies are able to build trust in their policy outputs that is not possible in other institutional settings. So at core here is uh, an information problem, but it's an information problem that exists as between the public or the voters and the policymaker. So if we see a policymaker, say, choose policy A rather than policy B, in a complex society, uh, we're going to have a really hard time understanding or coming to assessment of whether policy A or policy B is in our best interest. And that's the fundamental problem of distrust that exists in modern representative democracies. And um, and so again, so there's a trust problem, and the way that agencies uh, help us is by resolving that trust problem by again committing themselves to to procedural regularity and uh, third party review. By contrast, legislatures have a lot of time committing themselves to procedural regularity. Um, they're always making up procedure on the fly, and they also don't expose themselves to third party review. So generally speaking, you cannot challenge uh, a piece of legislation, a statute, because it has improper factual foundations, or that there's no real connection between what the legislature says it's trying to do and the actual policy means that it's chosen 
to pursue those stated objectives. Whereas by contrast, those are really core parts of administrative law, uh, where when an agency has taken an action, we really get to sort of kick the tires on the policy to see whether the factual foundations are there, to see whether the, there's actually a meaningful connection between what the agency, again, says it's trying to do and what it actually has done. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, The um, as you said, the legislatures really have a hard time committing themselves to um, to procedure. Um, and, you know, I, this just reminds me, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but in talking to legislative staff in Congress, um, it, having to do with legislation that, that deals with administrative agencies or, you know, substantively like that, sometimes I'll hear them say, oh, you know, do we have to worry that there's going to be an arbitrary and capricious challenge to this? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, no, you don't, because Congress doesn't have, isn't subject to that requirement, right? Like, you can't sue, uh, you know, Congress for, or you can't, you know, uh, seek judicial review of a piece of legislation under the arbitrary and capricious standard, because that's, it's a statutory standard. It's not something that applies to, uh, to Congress. It applies to agencies. Yeah, that's right. Um, and in, there are people who think that there, there have been arguments for decades that, Congress should be exposed to these something like that form of review, or that there should be, it's often referred to as uh, some, some form of legislative due process, where like we're just trying to create some regularity in the legislative <clears throat> domain that is reviewable in some sense by courts. And so those proposals have been around for a long time. But my view is that courts actually can't really, can't really engage in that form of review. Um, that is, the courts are simply too weak to, to really do that on a systematic and regular basis. And so one of the interesting things is that uh, agencies have this form of credibility by exposing themselves to forms of judicial review, precisely because they kind of fit a little bit awkwardly in our system of government. That is, if courts routinely challenged the factual basis of pieces of legislation that uh, they would be, in a sense, playing with with fire uh, because they are uh, engaging with, in a critical way, another institution which has uh, which has a firm constitutional basis in our system that has uh, that has a form of legitimacy that it achieves through popular elections and the like. And I think that that is not a sustainable uh, model of interaction between uh, constitutional actors. And so, you know, this this harkens to. Hamilton's famous idea that, you know, courts are actually pretty weak institutions in our system. They have neither purse nor sword. And so they're really just, they have the, the power of their judgment and moral suasion. And that's that's about it. But, so these weak institutions cannot review on a systematic or regular basis congressional actions on any kind of arbitrariness like grounds. Uh, it's, not a, it's not something that would exist in a political equilibrium, I think. But again, agencies, by contrast, are these kind of funny institutions in our system of government. They're not sort of obviously founded in the same way in our constitution. Um, and so many people suspect them. And it's in the, and it's this suspect nature that actually makes them more credible policymakers because courts are now in a great position to engage with them in a critical, systematic, and regular way on the foundations of their actions. And so now we say, agencies, you have to actually tell us what you're going to do. You have to give us reasons for what you're going to do. You have to have sound factual uh, foundations for what you're going to do. And uh, there's going to be this third party that comes in and looks at everything. And that commitment is actually credible in the agency context, whereas I I think it would not be in the legislative context. Mm. So then, you know, it is kind of a funny, ironic resolution to the to the question I asked earlier, which is, you know, what what explains the love hate relationship? It's it sounds like what you're saying essentially is that we love them because we hate them, right? Because of their uncomfortable position in the constitutional order and the suspicion that we have towards them because of issues like the attenuated relationship to electoral accountability. That's exactly the reason why we keep giving them more and more power, which is which is ironic. Right there, there is a there is a there is a uh, there is an element of irony there. That exactly, it's precisely their suspect nature, the fact that they're not exposed to elections, that they're not, you know, envisioned in the Constitution in the same way that say the uh, the legislative branches um, or the like, that makes them a, that, that makes them credible policymakers. That it allows us to 
to uh, commit them to forms of regularity and third-party review. Hmm. So, um, so one of the things I really like about this account uh, um, is that it kind of brings together two threads in administrative law scholarship that have you know been around for the past several decades. So, there's um, you know, when you talk about kind of reason giving and judicial review and oversight, uh, these are really kind of core normative concepts that drive administrative law. These are the things that administrative lawyers think about. These are things that judges talk about in cases having to do with um, administrative agencies. So it's very kind of traditional legal um, these are very traditional legal ideas that have been around, you know, since, you know, for many decades, part of the administrative state and discussed um, as part of the administrative state. Um, and, but they're very normative. They're very kind of doctrinal ideas. Um, and then so that's kind of on the one hand, one branch of legal scholarship that is uh, interested in administrative agencies. And the other branch is a little bit newer, but still at this point has been around for, you know, 30 years. Uh, uses tools from the social sciences, political theory, to think about administrative agencies in a more descriptive fashion. Kind of, uh, how do they come about? Uh, like administrative procedure, does you know what explains administrative procedure? Kind of a classic account um, by a group of political scientists. They go by McNulgast. Um, is that procedure is kind of administrative procedure is at least partially uh, a way for Congress to. Um, I kind of promote its power forward and facilitate oversight of agencies and the like. Um, so there's kind of a political story having to do with the incentives of various political actors and they're kind of acting rationally and it's the rational interaction of these actors with uh, in their environment that leads to the institutions that we have. And, and you bring that together in a really interesting way where, you know, these you kind of provide a positive descriptive foundation for um, these normative principles that people have been talking about for a very long time. And so one, one question that I think is, um, you know, kind of naturally comes out of the account that you give is, like, how did we arrive at this, um, at this state? Um, you know, was there a, was there some, were there a set of smart kind of founder framer types around the, um, you know, the growth of these institutions in the 19th and 20th century uh, that we're thinking along the lines that you describe, or was it just kind of a random process? Um, yeah, yeah. How did we, how do we get to this kind of happy state where the institutions that we have kind of make sense almost as though they were rationally designed um, for the purposes that you describe? Yeah. So, um, so I think. Thank you for pointing that out. That's. I mean, this is this is one of the ambitions of the book is to try to provide a new positive theory of administrative law. And you're right that the you know McNulgast have a theory, a positive theory of uh, of administrative law, which uh, again is trying to come up with a an explanation that is not normative, but instead is more descriptive in nature about why administrative law takes the form it does. And they'll do things. They do things like uh, they say, "Well, what you know? What's the role of notice?" Normally, we think about that as sounding in ideas of due process or notions of fairness. McNulgast would say, "No, that's that's actually a, those are normative ideas. What's the actual role of notice in our system? Well, it's to promote legislative control over agencies. So now agencies have to give notice about what they're about to do, and that gives time to uh, members of Congress to mobilize opposition or the like to." for depending regulatory actions. Um, and the theory that I have in this book provides a positive theory of administrative law that sounds in the normative commitments that would be very familiar to, to lawyers. So the ideas of fairness, deliberation, rationality, these are all core ideas that, um, that really are in the scenes of administrative law. And my Part of the argument in the book is that these actually serve actually an important political role too. Well, and why? Well, because it's precisely these forms of these norms of fairness, <clears throat> regularity, and the like that um, that promote the political value of agencies that serve a critical role in developing trust that justifies the delegation of authority to them, which again has a political role because uh, we don't trust. Uh, Congress itself or legislatures themselves to make these choices. So where did these these uh, virtuous institutions come from? I think that the 
critical period to think about here is less the New Deal um, when we had sort of an explosion of agencies. But again, but a period that was slightly before that, the progressive era, where we had a, another explosion of agencies, um, arguably like the initial or original um, explosion of agencies. And in the book, I argue that there's a couple critical components that came into um, that converged in the progressive era. One is that the economy became much more complex. Um, and so now, again, if we're thinking about policy A versus policy B, suddenly that becomes a harder thing for us to, to assess. Another thing that happened is that we have, uh, for the first time, in really massive companies, uh, firms, so that we have the, the scale of production increases dramatically in this period. And that is important because now we worry more about the activities of these scaled-up firms. Um, what exactly are they doing in the legislature? And so that, again, builds distrust. And so it's no accident that it's at this time that we have the emergence of words like lobbyists in our vocabulary. Uh, there had always been corruption in our system, but it became professionalized in a way uh, at this period. And so that helped to build distrust in our legislative institutions and so generated an incentive to to find some way around uh, around this problem of trust. Uh, and the third factor is related, and that is the advent, and this is normally often is sort of elided in the literature, but I think is quite important, is that there's a, a really fundamental change in the information environment. Um, so then now we have a much more professionalized uh, journalist class. And so here we have the muckrack, muckrakers, uh, magazines like McClure's and the like, which are doing investigative journalism for really the first time in our in our republic and, and shining light on all these abuses that existed in the legislative sphere. So again, building distrust in legislative institutions and providing an incentive for elected members to find some way around this problem of trust. And so, so what did they do? Uh, the argument is that they were kind of just trying to muddle their way through it to figure out ways that, that relieved some of the distrust, that relieved some of the problems that the problems of distrust were creating uh, for them electorally and in terms of their careers. And so I don't envision these members as having any, I, you know, I don't see them as deities. I don't see them as being uh, clairvoyant or, or the like. Um, and so the metaphor that I think about in this context is less of them as being engineers trying to solve this problem and more as being explorers, as feeling around for different possibilities. And Figuring out like what actually works in these uh, to re resolve these, relieve the problems that we're facing as politicians, um, and so it's a much more exploratory kind of evolutionary perspective. And so the early forms of delegation did not have all the procedural forms of regularity that we later came to see in, for example, the APA. Although you often see early variants of these same procedural forms. And so one act they talk about in the book uh, at some length is is the Hepburn Act of uh, 1906, where the Interstate Commerce Commission was given prospective rate-making authority. And the kind of procedures that are integrated there, uh, forms of judicial review, which are very preliminary in a lot of ways. They're just prototypes. Um, but you can see members starting to figure out what might work to resolve problems of distrust. What kind of procedures should we attach to these investments in authority that we're giving to agencies. And uh, so you see, for example, judicial review being that uh, agencies being exposed to forms of judicial review, but the standards of review that courts would review the actions of agencies being poorly specified or unspecified. So that's just one, uh, one example. And I think, you know, railroads, I think, are an interesting place to think about because they're both a, you know, a potent symbol of modernity that is uh, so characteristic of this you know, increase in complexity around the turn of the last century that was building distrust in the system. And here we also have some of the first administrative agencies trying to resolve these problems with prototypes of the kinds of procedures that later we became familiar with as, uh, as administrative law specialists. Yeah, you know, it's... Um... It, you, this kind of the story that you're telling and the, this question of, you know, how, how do the, you know, these institutions come about? How do they relate to kind of, you know, design versus exploration? So it's a, it's a very interesting analogy um, or a metaphor maybe is 
Um, it's almost kind of there's a question about like what counts as good social science theory <laughs> um, or theorizing in in a context like this, where you know one of the things is kind of particular about this situation is, of course, there's just one U.S. government and it changes over time, but it's not like there's lots lots of different um, examples that we could um, you know try to draw lessons from. We're really studying one institution as it unfolds over time, and you know I could kind of imagine two different. Um, ways of trying to proceed in a sense with, with theorizing about the situation. And it sounds like maybe you're, what you're doing is kind of a mixture of the two. So one is like a rational choice kind of, um, uh, kind of approach where we like a good theory is one that is consistent with, with rational choice. Um, and you know, we're maybe put aside the details of how institutions kind of come about and through historically contingent processes. Um, but rather we just say, look, um, you know, if we can provide, you know, in as much as we can understand these institutions as reflecting, you know, the rational choice of various actors, you know, that that's a good way of 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 proceeding, you know, theoretically. This is the same way with like with respect to McNoll gas, as we were talking about earlier, is understand these institutions as re- reflecting a response, a rational response to the incentives of various actors. Right? It's just kind of a, a parsimonious way of explaining things. Um, Another that it sounds more like what you're describing is, you know, we can think of what actors are doing as engaged, as you said, in in exploration. There's a search space that they're moving over of possible institutions that they might design. As you said, there's kind of an evolutionary element to this, which we could say another way of stating that is maybe small changes are more likely than really big changes, right? And so the same way in your genome, you know, it's not like a hundred of your genes simultaneously um, are going to uh, to mutate to create some new trait, right? All of our traits came about through very small mutations, right? Um, that then accumulate over time. And so um, in a situation like that, you know, what what I think we're looking for is more like an uh, like an, an equilibrium or a kind of, you know, a local settling place where we kind of find our, our way to, uh, you know, a, a spot in this landscape that, you know, any small step doesn't kind of make sense. So we, you know, it's like a gradient. We, we kind of walk along the gradient. We find ourselves in an area where it doesn't make sense to, to move out. So, um, so if we think of those kind of two ways of proceeding through uh, uh, as we theorize about these kinds of institutions and how they come about, do, do you have a, um, do you see what you're kind of engaged in as a combination of the two? Or are you really firmly in the explorer camp versus the rational, um, the rational choice camp? So I think of, um, I mean, this is, a, this is a great and really rich, rich question. Um, I think of the theory as being fundamentally rational choice theory, but in the sense that I'm describing uh, how somebody might design, you know, a system of uh, policymaking that is um, that is consistent with the incentives and threats to their well-being that they face. But I view that theory as kind of a shorthand or a, a summary of the, of the forces at play. Um, and when you zoom in on uh, on on the behavior that generates these institutions, I don't think you see people really, you know, thinking designing something as an architect might or as an engineer might. Again, I think it's I think that they're facing these pressures that uh, that they respond to in an evolutionary and kind of unknowing or almost unaware of kind of kind of way. And so, you know, why have this rational choice perspective? Well, I think it it serves this role of explanation in, in parsimony, which I think are really critical um, roles, uh, features of a theory. Um, so we, we want to have a, a, a parsimonious theory of, of, of institutions um, that explains why they look as they do. But when we zoom in on individual actors, I don't think that I don't think that we're I don't think we're it's right to think about them as as behaving in a in a as designers or as architects. Um, so if we, you know, by analogy, I think there's a there's an analogy to to market behavior here. If we think about somebody who makes cupcakes, for instance, and they they turn out to be the market leader in in cupcakes, and you interview them, like, why did you, you know, like, why did you make this business decision? Why did you invest in this plant to make so many cupcakes? 
you ask that person, they might say, well, I was making the best cupcakes. Mine like tasted much better than, than the cupcakes of all the competitors without thinking through like, oh, like how exactly do we fit into the market? What, um, you know, how are we going to make a profit? How do we justify this investment and the like? Often, I think when you hear uh, uh, business leaders talk, it's more of the, I just make good cupcakes variety and I wanted to make more of them. And so what you're seeing there is is really uh, somebody who is similarly just feeling things out and uh, behaving in this evolutionary way. Who we don't hear from are the cupcake people who uh, were making delicious cupcakes, but the market timing or their you know their cost structure was not quite right, and so so they go out of business. And so we don't hear about uh, the the failed cupcake makers. And I think there's something like that for politicians too, where we we see the institutions that serve a function, but we don't see so much the failed efforts. That is the the people who don't quite feel their way to the to the right institutional setup. Why? Because well, they lose their jobs. They're they they um, tend not to survive in the political system, and so so it's a shorthand. I think about I think about the positive theory as a rational choice kind of theory, where we set up the structure and explain behavior in in terms of uh, design or architecture. But when we think about human behavior, I think there I think the more evolutionary perspective is often the one that is, that feels more accurate to me. Yeah, that all that all that makes a lot of sense. Um, and um, it's an interesting project to, en- to envision that, you know, kind of coming the historical record for the institutional ideas that didn't go anywhere or that were tried out in limited form and, and failed. I mean, as you say, we, we kind of observe that the, there's a huge um, survivor bias in, in what we observe. Um, so it would be, um, would be interesting to do that, although, although a difficult kind of undertaking. Um, one, one question that kind of comes to mind, just going back to the, um, you know, the kind of core claim, um, of the, of the book about, about, um, these norms and procedures that we have in the administrative state as a way of uh, facilitating trust and creating, um, a, a platform for credible policymaking is, um, you know, how much do, does it, does it matter if people know about this or how much do we think that people know about this? So, you know, if I walk up to the average, um, person on the street and I asked them about administrative procedure and, you know, what, uh, you know, EPA is required to do in order to issue rulemakings and, you know, the role of courts and, you know, notice and comment and the like, obviously they're going to look at me sideways um, and they'll have, you know, most people are going to have no idea just the same way they wouldn't have any idea about any other kind of specialized, you know, they'll know something about what they know about their, their specialized knowledge, but they may be making cupcakes, but, um, Mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily about administrative procedure. So, um, is that a problem for, for, for your theory? I mean, there's a huge and a really interesting, um, part of the book. Um, again, I should just note, you know, it's it, one of the fun things about the, the book is that you draw on different fields and there's kind of some historical narrative and there's a bunch of social science, um, uh, modeling, but also actual experiments that you did. And so you kind of show in, in through this, the experimental setups that when people kind of know about, uh, decision-making set kind of context or setup, um, things like reason giving and review do affect how they um, view outcomes or, you know, kind of what we might call the, their, their, the legitimacy of the decision-making. But, um, but, you know, a lot of people aren't, they don't have, you know, they don't know anything about the administrative state and its procedures. And so I guess the question is, you know, is that a problem or if not, you know, how is it that this trust um, function of these procedures works if it's kind of in the background and people aren't really keyed into what's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question and a, and a good challenge. Um, I think that, uh, that there are a couple responses. I mean, there, there are, there are cases, if you look at the history of the APA, there were, um, there, there were a number of articles in the New York Times, for instance, around the founding of the APA in the late 30s and early 40s that dealt with administrative actions and really focused on the administrative procedures that were that were used there. So I think I think it's not quite right to say that like, you know, these things are totally invisible to the public. That is, the procedures in a direct way are invisible to the public and and um, and the like. Uh, it's also true, as you point out, that like, 
people are aware of the procedures that that actually does affect their views of the legitimacy or satisfaction with the decision. And I think that uh, that finding is quite is quite regular. That is, it's it's in my it's in my experiments, and it's it's also present in the literature more more broadly. So one thing is, yes, they do. You know, newspapers and the like do report on procedures, and the public seems to be responsive to those. That's that's one response. Another response, though, is that there's all it just happens in a in a more diffuse way. So that even if the New York Times is not reporting on it, that uh, on the particular procedures that are employed, that there's a a diffuse sort of legitimacy that occurs over time. Uh, so somewhere like the New York Times, the reporters themselves, for instance, New York Times may be observing a regulatory action, and the reporters will, you know, even if they're not articulating in their stories the procedures that are used, they are aware themselves of the procedures. So they know, for example, that there is a notice and comment process. In fact, many of the articles will will cite to um, will cite to the comments that are uh, that are issued in the course of, of regulatory proceeding as as a foundation for for the article itself. That's a substantive foundation for the article itself. The, so the are the authors of the articles are aware of uh, the procedures, and they just like you know just like the respondents in my experiments, um, or that you uh, see referred to in the literature more broadly. They're just like the respondents in my experiments are positively affected by the procedures. The authors, too, of this New York Times stories and, and other journalists will be affected by the by their knowledge of the procedures. And, um, and that will transmit in subtle and diffuse ways that build over time into the stories that they write. So I think it's, I think it's a good challenge. And I don't, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit hard to, to pin down, like, well, you know, what exactly is the the connection between the procedures and beliefs because many times the beliefs about legitimacy are not connected directly to procedures but instead uh, transmit through these sort of uh, diffuse networks um, but I think that that's I think that that's kind of how it how it operates hmm. yeah it's interesting and you know um, it kind of puts me in mind of another situation so there's you know in um, in rulemakings these days at least, some of the time, not most of the time, not for most rulemakings, but occasionally, you know, agencies will do a high-profile rulemaking. Um, the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan to control greenhouse gas emissions from um, uh, from the electricity sector. The various iterations of rules to deal with um, with internet governance and net neutrality that we've seen over the years. Um, and sometimes those kind of catch the public eye and we see um, what are sometimes referred to as mass comment campaigns where advocacy organizations go out and, um, you know, try to get people to write, submit comments into the EPA or to the, to the FCC. And, um, you know, so, so, so some t- people actually are very, um, uh, you know, kind of skeptical about these campaigns. They kind of um, they worry that it creates a false impression amongst the public that, you know, that there's like a vote that's happening, um, you know, and, and there's a question about how we, what agencies should do with these comments, which are mostly kind of not of the technically sophisticated variety. And so, you know, it, it's, they're not necessarily presenting the agency with new information or anything like that. Um this is the debate um, that you're familiar with and administrative amongst administrative law scholars about what to do with these comments. But there's another story here, which is, you know, maybe they're doing the work of the administrative state by going out and just informing people that they can submit comments and that just by um, alerting people to this kind of feature of the um, of the procedure for administrative decision making, they're actually kind of inadvertently shoring up the legitimacy of, um, of the institutions, even if they disagree with the substantive content. So they don't like the FCC rulemaking, they go out, they try to get comments, but it actually turns out that by even soliciting comments and alerting people to the procedure, they're actually um, increasing the legitimacy of the final decision. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that quite a lot. That's a that's a really interesting take on mass commenting, which you're right, the, the literature is pretty skeptical of, you know, viewing it as either useless or distraction, waste of time. Or just like a basically a cynical effort by uh, by interest groups to to raise money uh, through these through these campaigns, 
but I think you're right. There is this 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 aspect of just raising awareness of the procedures that are available through agencies. I mean, the other thing I, sh- I should have added to the last comment was that even though the procedures that are used by agencies may not be well known by members of the public, the fact that agencies are subjected to judicial review is pretty well known. And uh, so we're, we're constantly hearing stories about agency actions being uh, being um, being set aside for one reason or another, a flaw in reasoning, inadequate foundations, factually for their for their efforts or the like. And the public will have, a, I think, a sense of that. And judicial review itself is really supported in a fundamental way by the procedural regularity that exists at the agency level. Uh, so if we imagine removing the procedures, judicial review itself would become much more difficult. And the public, I think, would have a, you know, would detect that over time in a diffuse kind of way. So, so one of the kind of implications of the the story that you're telling is, um, I mean, it's really you know kind of straightforward implications that there's a lot of value that we're getting that the administrative state gets out of procedure, um, and um, and that not just the administrative state but just our democracy in some sense it would just be very difficult for um, anyone to engage in policy making if there weren't um, some way to create these kind of procedurally constrained agency uh, actors. They don't have to be agencies, I guess, but some actor out there in the environment that's constrained in this way. Um, and that, you know, facilitates democratic action in some, in some sense. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, more procedure is good uh, uh, always, right? And so I think, and right now, of course, there's a, um, a pretty substantial um, debate, both amongst legal academics, but also within the broader public uh, p- public policy um, circles as well about exactly this, that um, we've over-proceduralized administrative decision-making. It's too hard to do anything. We have the National Environmental Policy Act makes it impossible to cite anything. We can, no one can ever build anything because, um, it, you know, there's just so many hoops to jump through. Um, you know, agencies can't can't make any decisions. So presidents come into office and they can't get anything done uh, because it takes so long. And, and, you know, that's a problem because it, you know, uh, it makes it impossible for the electorate to, to have its uh, wishes vindicated. And then people, um, frankly, I think a little silly, but people still nevertheless do kind of look to for- outside the United States um, to states like China and will argue, well, look at, isn't that wonderful? They can create a high speed rail and, you know, so easily. And if they want to build a city, they build a city. And if they want to tear down a, a neighborhood, they tear down a neighborhood. And, um, and then they look with some envy, uh, at, at these, at these states, um, in, you know, compared to the U S where, you know, we've been building the, um, uh, you know, the, a, a new subway line on the east side of Manhattan mm-hmm. for the last 50 years. And, uh, you know, we, we can't build anything in San Francisco. So there's tremendous, or at the state of California, so there's tremendous housing crunch and, and uh, limited supply leading to high prices. And so, you know, how do we, you know, how do we get to the, how do we get to the Goldilocks level? How do we know, you know, is it just a question of an amount of procedure? Is it some procedures are more important or better than others? And, you know, where are we? Are we, are we at the too much point? Are we, you know, or, you know, again, in light of the critiques of the regulatory state, um, you know, do we not have enough procedure or do we have the wrong procedures? Yeah. So I think you're pointing to a lot of really rich, again, set of, uh, set of issues here. Um, so I, I think you're right to say that part of the theme of the book is that um, that agencies, even though they're not democratic, fit into our democratic system of government in a in a in a way that we shouldn't necessarily be um, be sorry about. That is, like we shouldn't worry too much about the fact, in my view, that agencies are not democratic. That are not, at least in the sense that they're not, you know, that we don't elect that we don't elect the people who are making decisions at the agency level. Because again, they're fitting into our larger democratic system of government in a really critical and distinctively useful way that promotes representative government, largely, you know, broadly understood. I also think that you're right that there's a, there, you know, procedure is political in a fundamental kind of way. That the procedure, I tell my students, the procedure substance barrier is very 
permeable. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's quite right. And so you can certainly have too much procedure or too little procedure. But one thing we shouldn't do is also on the other side of things is, is apologize or worry too much about the fact of procedure because precisely it's the, the, the procedural regularity that, that really that is distinctive about administrative agencies that makes them special in our system of government and that allows them to, to, to fill out their, their role in our representative system. So we, we have to have, in my view, some procedure, and we shouldn't apologize for having some procedure. Uh, there's an effort to, to radically deproceduralize things along the lines you're suggesting. And my argument is that that actually may be beneficial in the short term for people's, for your objectives, but, but in the long term is not going to be is not going to support your your objectives because because that will undermine what is fundamentally distinctive about the administrative state and its political value in our system. So we deproceduralize, then over time we'll end up with less delegation of authority to those to those agencies. So uh, the procedure is really critical to the foundation of the administrative state. That said, you can certainly have too much procedure, and um, and so precisely because procedure has implications for for substance, there are going to be people who, and we have uh, many instances of people advocating forms of procedure in a kind of cynical way where it's not designed to resolve the problems of distrust that are at the foundation of the project that I worked on, but instead really uh, the the objective of injecting these procedures into, into the administrative process is uh, is again not to not to resolve problems of trust, but instead to gum up the works in a sense and to prevent the agency from doing anything. And so that is something one has to has to guard against. And um, and you know I, I think that over time too that will have a political response if that is the dominant mode of proceduralization. Um, right now I think we're in the we're in a kind of funny place where we have too much procedure in some ways that is the 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 forms of the you know judicial review has in some cases produced uh, such uh, strenuous analytical requirements that agencies have a really hard time getting much done. On the other hand, we have too little procedure in some ways too, um, so that agencies, as they're responding to uh, these requirements to 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 amplify their analytical apparatus and the like they're they're shifting out uh, they're trying to shift into it into modes of policymaking that are less exposed to judicial review so for you know one of the one of the uh, forms of policymaking that has become really quite salient recently has been the use of guidance documents by agencies these guidance documents are not um, formally understood um, they're not formally understood creating new legal rights or obligations. They're instead just telling the public, you know, here's some pre-existing legal right or obligation. Here's how we interpret it, think about it, plan to enforce it, et cetera, in a non-binding kind of way. But the reality is that these guidance documents are often effectively kind of creating new policy and uh, that is creating new legal rights or obligations. And, and so that's an adaptation that agencies have made. Um, to the fact that that um, that they're being over proceduralized on on some other dimensions, and and so in a sense we have a, both too much procedure and too little procedure at the same time right now, um, and uh, and so it's a and these are both messy political responses to the fact that procedure is is um, that the procedure substance barrier is is very permeable. Hmm. Um. I think this is a kind of a, you know, related, you know, kind of uh, from from the last point, but certainly with respect to the kind of procedure substance barrier is I'm curious your thoughts on the, the relationship between procedure and politics. So, you know, a classic um, distinction in administrative law is between politics and administration, right? Um, and there was a time when, when you know, that was thought to be a, uh, a divide that was meaningful and... Um, you know, on one side was kind of political decision making that should be left to electoral, you know, 
officials and Congress. And then, you know, what, what got delegated over to agencies was just kind of purely administrative decisions that were technical or expertise driven and, and not political. And of course, we now have known for decades that that, does, that divide doesn't really make sense in the sense that, um, you know, administrative decisions on questions like, you know, how to, how, whether and how to regulate greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, even something like whether a vaccine should be approved or not. There's going to be values, um, choices that are embedded in them. Um, they're not purely empirical questions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so do you see, so one way that someone I could imagine t- would tell the story would be, well, procedure is how we protect that administrative um, dis- we protect administrative decision making from politics, but through proceduralization. Um, and that's why we can, um, trust agencies to make decisions, um, credibly because we've created a mechanism to insulate agencies from political influence. Um, that would be kind of one version of the story. Um, you know, an, a complete alternative version would be, uh, we've made a big mistake by trying to keep this distinction and, and, and defend the border between a politics administration, and we actually just should recognize that uh, agencies are subject to political oversight. In fact, agencies should be able to make reference to um, uh, their political directives. I mean, that's a that's an idea that's been circulated. The agencies mm-hmm. should just say the president told me to do it. That's why I'm doing it, and that court should accept that as a kind of reason. Um, so yeah, so so these are all kind of debates that we've been having for a long time in administrative law. And I guess the question is, you know, do you see that your book and your project is as shedding light on what's going on in the administrative procedure, you know, sorry, administrative politics distinction or, you know, the administrative administration politics procedure nexus? You know, what is there a reconfiguration there or how should we think about those things? Yeah, so I I mean, I just I guess I'm perhaps somewhere in between these these two polar possibilities um in the sense that i i don't see the book uh, you know I, I see the book as arguing against the idea that it should just be politics all the way down uh, or that we should be, accept that or think about that as a as a viable possibility i also though want to argue against the idea that it's just a sort of uh, uh technocratic uh, endeavor too um and uh so you know, I see the critical role of agencies in our system is is to effectuate statutory objectives, and and so at the critical for me is that is that positive act of uh, enactment that is the the uh, the positive law plays a huge role in the normative structure of the thesis. That is, this is the way in which we should you know orient our arguments around is is, is are the statutory objectives that are articulated. Through these enactments, and that is going to be, you know, the the creation of those statutory objectives is a admittedly purely political kind of enterprise, but it is one I want to argue that that is relatively well regulated by the political system because statutory objectives, if they're done in the right way, are going to be formulated at a pretty high level that is uh, that is parsable by the public and for which members can be held accountable. At the agency level, then the, the there's also a role for politics, but it's a it's a form of politics that is that is regulated by the statutory objectives. That is, it's not just a freewheeling kind of throw society into some kind of administrative process with you know all the different um, stakeholders having some input in an open ended way and coming up with a policy decision. Instead, it's a it's a process that is uh, governed by, limited by the statutory objectives. And so there's going to be a lot of fighting and disagreement, um, and you might say politics, about what the statutory objectives mean, how they apply to various contexts, and the like. But again, it's all limited and regulated by the fact that those objectives exist. And so the legitimacy or the appropriateness of an agency action should not be read against the idea uh, it read against the benchmark of, you know, was it a democratic process? But instead, um, how good was it, it, the, the normative question or query of interest should be instead, how well did the agency effectuate the objectives that it was given under the statute? Um, with, under, and there's certainly a role for politics there, but it's, it's, it's not a democracy first kind of perspective. 
democracy happens, but it's more in the objectives orientation. Um, hmm. So, so I guess what my, my, um, one question I would have as a kind of follow up to that, um, mm -hmm. is there's going to be cases where the statutory objectives, I mean, they're, they're often very broad, as you know, right? So, um, you know, the SEC, just to take, you know, uh, some concrete examples, the, um, the SEC's, you know, ongoing rulemaking on the kind of information that it was going to require about, about climate change risk and how something like that fits up with, you know, the, the broader statutory objectives that the SEC is, is, is trying to vindicate. Or, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency is deciding, you know, how to implement the national ambient air quality standards and whether to update them, you know, in light of new information about particulate matter pollution. And the statutory objective there is to set the standards in such a way as to protect public health with an adequate margin of safety. And, you know, what does that mean uh, about whether PM um, 2.5 should be set at, you know, X, Y, or Z parts per million? Um, so in light, and, and, you know, these, so the statutory objectives can themselves just be incredibly contestable and in fact contested. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, re regulating greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act, whether the Clean Water Act should, you know, what, what the jurisdictional boundaries around the uh, Clean Water Act should be. Um, it, I mean, just, you know, we could come up with a thousand examples between the two of us if you gave us enough time, right? So, um, so then I guess to, how does that reality fit in with the model of that you're describing? So, so yes, there are these statutory objectives, but they often require, in order to vindicate them, values choices to be made on the details of implementation, how to set, where to set the next, what, you know, how to set the jurisdictional boundaries around the Clean Water Act, you know, uh, whether to require disclosure of climate risks, you know, how to deal with internet governance and whether there should be a net neutrality rule for wireless as well as what, you know, whatever. So, so then, yeah, so, I, so, so in light of that, right, and, and then the place that you want to put on the, how much help is the positive law giving you there, I guess, is the question in light of the, the open nature, um, uh, or the open textured nature of the question that um, the agencies are often dealing with, the questions that they're dealing with. Uh, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to place some constraints on it. Uh, there's going to be a huge range of discretion through, you know, and that range of discretion is defined by the set of policy particulars that are justifiable in light of the relevant facts and statutory objectives. And that is going to then there's going to be a huge range of discretion there, uh, often, and um, but but it is a it, it is a limited range of discretion, um, and if we think about, you know, I think the book is called the Reasoning State. If we think about the unreasoning president, uh, President <laughs> Trump, uh, you know, he ran into continuously the fact that you know this is actually a limited range of discretion, and so, you know, if we look historically the rate at which agencies are affirmed uh, in the courts is something like uh, you know, two-thirds to perhaps three-fourths of the time uh, agencies will have their actions affirmed when they're challenged. Um, and for him, it was basically the reverse. Um, that is, President Trump would try to do something through an agency. Uh, the agency would do it terribly in some way. That is, it would, it would have the, you know, the foundations that the factual foundations of the proposed, uh, of the rule that they were trying to implement or the action they were trying to take were flawed, uh, or they were outside of their statutory objectives, or, uh, the meaning of the statute, or the like. And, and so for Trump, uh, our unreasoning president, the, the, the ratio was basically flipped. And so roughly three quarters of the time he was losing in court, actually. And, um, and so that, I think, demonstrates that this is not an unbounded range of discretion. Uh, that there are real limits that are imposed by the reasoning state, and they bind in a in a meaningful place. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, and it's this, you know, it's uh, I've I've made some kind of similar arguments in other in a totally different context, but you know, this notion that what administrative what the administrative state does in some broad way is provide guardrails or constraints, and then that there is a legitimate role for values or politics, but then, um, but 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 it's not it's not unbounded, as you said. Yeah, it's it's within the the, the politics the and the like. These debates occur within the bounds that are created by statutory meaning, and and there's a lot of room there for for legitimate debate. 
Um, there's, this is not a mechanical exercise, but, um, but they're all, but it's a bounded exercise. Great. All right. Well, you know, we could obviously, um, uh, keep chatting about these, these issues, um, you know, probably indefinitely, but we're, we're basically out of time. So, um, you know, thanks, thanks for joining me today, Jez. It's been a really interesting conversation. It's a great book. Uh, people should definitely um, read it, um, pick it up and read it. It is, um, it's really fascinating and, and an important contribution. So, um, so thanks, thanks again, Jed. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.